Well, happy Father's Day. A few weeks ago, we were privileged to honor all of our moms in uh, service for Mother's Day, and today we pause our current sermon series we've been working on again to, to honor our dads. A good father, in my opinion, is one of the uh, uh, most unnoticed, unsung, and underappreciated heroes in our culture. It seems common, I think, in our society today to have absent fathers, you know, and unfaithful fathers and uncommitted fathers. Statistics for divorce rates in America are shocking to me. And although divorce rates have been decreasing since the 1990s, the number of live-in couples has been increasing correspondingly. In other words, why bother making a marriage commitment when we can just live together? Then if we decide we're not compatible after all of that, we can sort of avoid a messy divorce. The sociologists and the people that studied these statistics will tell you there's a direct correlation between live-in couples and the decrease of divorce. So people aren't getting as many divorces because they're not getting married. I'm personally convinced that Generation X, uh, the Generation X attitude about commitment, which is that they're generally commitment should be avoided at all costs, exists because so many people in their 40s and younger grew up without any real example of commitment in their homes. Commitment is born out of conviction, okay? But convictions have become this old-fashioned, outdated idea that have no value for the postmodern worldview that dominates our society today. You see, if, if the father, the priest of the home, which we'll talk about more in a minute, if the head of the household, if he has no convictions about the most basic and most important commitments in life, namely his family, his marriage, his children, then how can we expect the next generation to have any convictions about the most basic and most important commitments in life. The truth is God intended fathers to follow Christ. And when that happens, the family can follow dad. And when that does not happen, the family will often stray unguided. And no doubt I've seen some incredible women, some single mothers, lead their families because the father chose not to. But God's design is for the father to follow Christ, and the family to follow the Father, which in turn means the entire family is then following Christ together. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So we fathers, we're meant to model this example. And example is a powerful teacher, good or bad. What we model before our kids is the clearest message of all. I was on an airplane from London to Chicago not long ago, and I was sitting next to a young British woman in her 20s. It was a long flight, and so there was quite a bit of conversation going on, and she was a professed agnostic. She had no opinion about God one way or the other. And so I was witnessing to her. I was telling her about Christ throughout our conversation. And we talked about family and life and so on. And at one point, after telling me about her boyfriend and all about their relationship, which had been going on for several years, I asked her if they were planning on getting married. To which she replied, I won't get married for the same reason that I won't go to church. It is no longer relevant. You see, church and the institution of marriage have outlived their usefulness in her estimation. So why bother? Why trouble yourself? Of course, as it turns out, in continuing to talk with her, she lives with her mother and her sister because her dad isn't around. It's no wonder she has no convictions about family and faith. The truth is, being a good father 
doesn't mean being perfect. It means being present and committed and following Christ. After that, the love that we have for our family will cover so many of our mistakes, and we all make them, but unfortunately, good fathers, which really should be the standard in our culture, are becoming, it seems to me, more rare. And yet, I don't think we always honor our fathers like we should. And again, it's, it's almost as if the traditional family structure of husband and wife and kids, all under the same roof, is this antiquated idea. But I would submit to you that this traditional family structure is by God's design, and it is as relevant today as it has ever been. And yet I believe that our society is increasingly degrading the value of a good father being present and accounted for in the home. It's been said that Father's Day is just like Mother's Day, only you don't spend as much on the present. And I don't know if this is true or not, but I read that back when people still made collect calls, that the greatest number of long-distance phone calls were made on Mother's Day, and the greatest number of collect calls were made on Father's Day. <laughs> Fortunately, and appropriately honored or not, there are still really good fathers that we can point to. There, there are still model dads who, although they didn't get it all right by a long shot, they are present, they are committed, and they are following Christ. And interestingly enough, uh, the idea of Father's Day came from a young woman uh, in Spokane, Washington, which is near where my my mom is from. She understood very well how important and special her dad was. And she's the reason we have Father's Day today. Her name was Sonora Smart Dodd. And uh, she thought of the idea of Father's Day. She was listening to a Mother's Day sermon in 1909 at her church. She was raised by her dad, William Jackson Smart, after her mom died. And she wanted him to know how special he was to her. He was a Civil War veteran. He raised all six kids on his own. So, he, of course, he made all the parental sacrifices and was, in the eyes of his daughter, this courageous, selfless, and loving man. And so, Sonora, upon hearing this Mother's Day sermon, approached her pastor and expressed that she thought that fathers should have a similar holiday, honoring them. And she initially suggested June 5th, which happened to be her dad's birthday. But the pastors didn't have enough time to get the sermons ready, so the celebration was deferred to the third Sunday in June. And then eventually the idea began to catch on as she pushed it around the area. And in 1924, President Calvin Coolidge proclaimed the third Sunday in June as Father's Day. It's a cool story. And I didn't know this part until I read it recently, but roses are apparently the Father's Day flowers. Uh, red is to be worn for a living father and white if the father has died. And although I've never actually seen that part of the holiday observed. And don't worry, guys, we're not going to pin roses on you today. But because of the love of one daughter, today we get the privilege of honoring all of our dads. And there are so many examples of great fathers in Scripture that we can look to. Our Heavenly Father, of course, being the ultimate example. But this morning, we're going to take a look at the life of Joshua. And let's talk about some of the attributes of a truly great father. From early on in Scripture, we see Joshua as a man of great character and faith in God. A courageous man. He was born in Egypt, probably in the area of Goshen in the northeast Nile Delta. He was born a slave like his fellow Hebrews about 40 years before the Exodus. And I think it's worth pausing and highlighting the fact that Joshua wasn't born into privilege. He didn't have a silver spoon in his mouth. He wasn't from the upper crust of society. He was a slave, the lowest of the low. And yet by trusting in God, 
following his convictions and committing himself to God and his family, regardless of his circumstances, he rose to prominence in ways that few have before or since. And I don't think he ever had it easy in his life, when you look at his life, and yet he never seemed to use that as an excuse to focus on himself. He never used, it as, used that as an excuse to moan about his problems or shirk his responsibilities and abandon his commitments for his own gain. But we sure do see that today, don't we? I can't tell you how many men I've talked to over the years who justify their lack of commitment, their adultery, their unfaithfulness, their selfishness because they had it rough in life. Circumstances haven't always been kind to them, and so they point to that fact as if to say, my behavior isn't my fault. That's not what good fathers do, and that's not what Joshua did. He grew up in the worst of circumstances, but he never used that as a crutch or a justification for bad decisions. Instead, he charged after God, often fearlessly confronting these seemingly insurmountable odds because he knew that God was bigger than anything life could dish out. And he led his family and the people of God with courage and vigor like men were intended to. Joshua was one of my biblical heroes. And he was a great father. So let's just look at a few of the attributes in his life. A few of the attributes that make a great father. Okay, First of all, Joshua was the priest of his home. In the book of Numbers, chapter 27, we see Moses first commissioned Joshua as a leader of the people, chosen by God. And then at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 34, Moses is dying. And soon after, Joshua, as God's chosen to succeed Moses, takes the passing of this proverbial baton as the leader, the shepherd of the people from Moses. Okay, And then we get to the book of Joshua, which in many ways completes the story of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, as the book of Joshua is all about Israel's uh, capture and settlement of the land of Canaan, the fulfillment of the prophecies about the promised land. This entire book is an epic adventure, you know, a grand narrative about war and fierce battles, hard-fought victory and rest for the people of God. It's the kind of book that would make, I've always thought, a really great action-adventure movie, you know? The kind of story that dads like. There's plenty of fighting and war and drama and the good guys win and they conquer the enemy. And so it's only fitting that one of the greatest fathers in the Bible is Joshua, who leads the Lord's people on these great conquests. And after all the battles, after miraculously crossing the Jordan, after the fall of Jericho and taking possession of the promised land, at the end of the book, in chapter 24, verses 14 and 15, we see Joshua, the great warrior and leader of men, after all that they've been through at 110 years old, he gathers all the leaders of the people, the elders and the the judges and the officers, and with this tremendous sense of resolve, He renews his commitment to God and he calls on Israel to fear and serve and worship the Lord God and him alone. And then after recalling all of the Lord's great faithfulness to his people, Israel, much of which Joshua had experienced firsthand in his own life, he says this to the leaders of the people, verse 14, Now therefore... Fear the Lord and serve him with sincerity and in faithfulness. And that word serve, which is abad in the Hebrew, occurs 16 times in chapter 24 alone. Okay, Joshua was very serious about serving God. 
He says, put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river, that's their ancestral gods from Mesopotamia, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. These are the gods that were worshipped by the people in Canaan that have now been dispossessed by the Israelites. And then he says this famous statement, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Okay? As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Joshua was the priest of his home, which is what as men fathers were called to be. Right? Being the priest of your home is the difference between just being around and being a truly effective leader of the family. So Joshua says, whatever you're going to do, you're going to do. But as for me and my house, this is what we're going to do. We're going to serve the Lord. What do, you, what do we mean when we say priest of the home? We talk about that in church a lot. What does that mean? Because sometimes when you say priest, I think about a gray-haired guy with a fancy robe on, you know, carrying the, the tin of burning incense around the house, speaking in Latin. That's not what we're talking about. The priest of the home, what that means to us is that you're the spiritual leader of your family. And the way that you lead your family as the priest of the home is by example. And that's how you are the priest of your home. That's how you lead your family, by example. Okay? Remember, that is the clearest message that we can send. This is exactly what Joshua did. He said, look, whatever you, whatever you think you need to do, you do. But I'm telling you that my family and I, we're going to serve the Lord. And he did it. He led by example. Notice that he speaks for his entire family. Okay? When we lead by example, there's little question for the family about what is expected. There's little question about what the family is all about. There's little question about what is important for the family, what, what we should be doing, what our, what our goals are, and so on. When the father leads by example, the entire family can function as a unit because you simply see what dad is doing, what's important to him, who he gives his allegiance to, what he's trying to accomplish, and the whole family can work together in unity with that, in stride with the father to accomplish those same goals. Conversely, when no one knows what the father is up to, it becomes anyone's guess. It's every man for himself because there's no clear leadership defined within that family unit. There's no vision. There's no clear purpose. It's, there's no obvious intent and no one to follow. And Joshua knew this, and so he led by example. He just didn't talk about his convictions. His actions would bear out what he believed. Okay? Remember, the clearest message you can ever send is your example. All right? Growing up as a kid, I always knew what was expected of me. We lived on a small farm in the hills of Pennsylvania, and throughout my entire childhood, I watched my father work a secular job outside the home, and I mean he worked a lot, and then came home and he worked the farm. He never just told us what to do. He always, he was constantly showing us what to do. You know the difference? Because he was out doing it himself. So we knew what needed to be done. And he never did anything unless he was going to give it all that he had. If it was time to build a new barn for the chickens, you could be certain it was going to be the finest chicken barn that could possibly be built with the resources that we had. He was that way about everything. He still is today. There was always such a clarity about what needed to be done and how to get it done. 
simply by watching him work. And I really appreciate that now as an adult. See, he was leading by example. He was out doing it, and I knew what I needed to do by watching him. As the priest of the home, this has to translate into our spiritual lives as well. Okay? It's one thing when you're with someone and they're expressing a need for themselves or for someone else, and you say, you know what, we're going to pray about that. Our whole family's going to pray about that. It's another thing entirely when you say, how about we pray about that right now? Particularly when your family's with you, and when they see you respond to people that way. They see you praying for people, and especially when you invite your kids and your wife to pray with you for that person. You're setting an example as priest of your home. It's great to have devotional time. We need it. It's better to lead your family in devotional time. Talk to your kids about God, about the Bible. Point out the provision in your life and deliverance and direction and wisdom and the guidance that he's giving you. You know, let the family in on what God is telling you and make sure that they see the answers when the Father gives them to you. It not only builds your own faith, but it builds their faith. It's being the priest of the home. It's leading by example. Example is the clearest message that you can send to your family, okay? That's what Joshua did. He was also, number two, he was the protector of his home. Men are called by God to be protectors of their homes, the gatekeepers that watch over their families. It's all throughout Scripture. When Nehemiah organized the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem, he placed each man on the section of the wall closest to his own home. Did you know that? It was motivation not only to ensure that they were going to build a really strong wall, but it also enabled them to immediately defend their own family if the need arose. Okay, chapters 2 and 3 talk about that. And in chapter 4, verses 7 through 14, we see Nehemiah placing men along the wall to protect their families. Okay, verse 7. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were be, beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. In chapter 11, the men that were assigned to live in the city and defend it were described as valiant, mighty men of valor. These guys were not afraid of a fight. They knew what it meant to defend their homeland and their families. Fathers are called to be the protectors of their homes and their families. We see a pattern throughout Scripture where men went out to war while the women and children stayed behind. We see it in Numbers 1, Deuteronomy 3, 1 Samuel chapter 30, and, and of course, the same was true of Joshua. 
Chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 says, Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. Joshua understood that the men, the fathers, were protectors and gatekeepers of their families, just as he defended and protected his own family, okay? Sometimes protecting our families means hard choices. Sometimes protecting our families means not doing what's easy. At one point after Jericho was taken, one of the Israelite men, Akan, had stolen some of the items from the city that were devoted to destruction. God had given very specific instructions that Jericho was to be totally wiped out, everything destroyed, because the iniquity of the Amorites that lived there had become so great. But Akan kept some of the items that were found in the siege, and God's anger, it says, were turned, was turned on the Israelites. Chapter 7, verse 1, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. So, so here's Joshua. He has a decision to make. He can take it easy on this guy and allow all of Israel, including his own family, to suffer the consequences, or he can do what is necessary to protect his family and all of his people. Of course, he chooses to protect the people and his family and to honor God. And what happens? It's not a very easy scene. It's, it's actually a hard one to read. It must have been a very difficult situation for Joshua, but he did what he had to do. Verse 19, Then Joshua said to Akan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Akan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels, and I coveted them, and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen and donkeys and sheep, and his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor, which means Valley of Trouble, by the way. Aren't you glad we live in an age of grace? I'd have been stoned about every other day growing up if, <laughs> if, we, if we lived in the Old Testament times. At times, Joshua had to make hard choices to protect his family. He knew what was required to be a strong man and a good father. The same holds true for us fathers today. 
which means it's our job to determine what and whom will influence the family, which includes deciding what doctrine to believe, where to go to church, how to educate your children, what media you will allow in your home, who has access to your family. You see, I can meet in my office or out in the community somewhere with just about anyone who is in need of help. I can counsel and disciple and minister to all kinds of people with every manner of personal problem that you can think of. But that doesn't mean that they sleep at my house and drive my kids to school and help my wife prepare meals. Why? Because it's my job as a father to be the protector and gatekeeper of my family. That isn't exclusionist. Okay? That's being a man of God. If I'm counseling with or routinely helping a young man who's chemically dependent, for instance, who's in and out of trouble, who steals everything around him that isn't bolted down regardless of who it belongs to. And by the way, I meet with young men like that today and counsel with them. See, I can meet and counsel with those guys and love them, and I mean love them forever. But in this state that they're in, I'm not going to give them the keys to my house and ask them to babysit my kids. Right? Because as a father, I'm charged to protect and guide and lead my family. I have to exercise wisdom and discernment in what and who I allow into my house. So I'm very mindful about who I allow into my home, who has access to my wife and children. It's the same reason I don't allow certain movies to be played in our house. It's the same reason we have filters all over all of our computers. It's the same reason we make it a point to know who our kids are hanging out with and their parents. It's called being a father, the protector and gatekeeper of my family. My dad was always a strong leader. And even before he gave his life to Christ, he acted as the protector of our home and our family. I grew up seeing that. I remember not always being permitted to spend the night at certain friends' houses, understanding now that I would quite possibly have been exposed to things that probably wouldn't have been good for me. If a stranger came to the house, you know, we lived on top of a hill in the middle of nowhere, in the hills of Pennsylvania, in a long gravel driveway. People just didn't happen through the neighborhood. If a stranger showed up to our house, Dad would meet them at the door. Why? Because if somebody was up to no good, they were going to go through him before they got to us. They didn't have access to the rest of the, of the family. That's a father's job. And Joshua knew it well. Okay, a good father is the priest of his home. He's the protector of his home. And finally, and we'll finish up, a good father is the provider for his home. From the very beginning, we see God charging men to provide for their families. In Genesis chapter 2, God gives Adam charge over the land. And he tells Adam to work the garden and keep it. He gives him dominion over all the animals and creation. And then even after the fall, God charges Adam to work the ground and produce food for himself and his family. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Good fathers are good providers. And Joshua knew this well. After all the conquests, all of the hard-fought battles to provide an inheritance for all the people, the land is finally assigned to the different tribes of Israel. And in the end, after everyone receives their portion, their allotment, their piece of dirt, Joshua, like so many good fathers, he takes his last. Chapter 19, verse 49. When they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritances, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. 
By command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked, Timnath, Sarah, in the hill country of Ephraim. And he rebuilt the city and settled in it. I love that last part. You know, Joshua not only fought to provide for everyone else, but he provided for his own family. And here in verse 50, as soon as peace was finally achieved and everyone had settled into their new homes, everyone was taking rest, Joshua does what? He rolls up his sleeves and he goes to work rebuilding the city that was allotted to him and his family. Joshua understood that as a father, a leader, as a man, it was his responsibility to provide for his family. Why this seems to elude so many men today in our culture is beyond me. And it makes me so much more thankful for the fathers who do provide for their families. And we have many here today, by the way. I'm so thankful for my father. He, it was, he was anything. He was a provider. He still is. Whatever it took to provide for his family is what dad did. And he continues to do this, this day, well past retirement age. He gets up every morning and he works till evening, whether it's in his, his business, earning income, or working in his ministry, or working on the house, or working outside the house. He's always working on something. If he's not mowing his lawn, he's usually over at my house mowing my lawn. <laughs> I'm sure he can come up with plenty of excuses to fully retire and do nothing if he wanted to, but that's not how he's wired. He works all the time. He provides for his family. He always has. That's what good fathers do. I'm so incredibly thankful for my father. He's been my hero, my role model, my mentor, my friend, and a tremendous provider for our family. You know, he's always ready to offer advice when asked, share wisdom, admit mistakes, and lend a helping hand. He's what a father is supposed to be. Priest of the home, protector of the home, and a provider for the home. Listen, guys, and I'm closing. Being a father is an awesome responsibility. And I'd just like to say that it is one of my greatest honors in life to serve so many great men in this church. I'm proud to be associated with you. And I'm honored to be your pastor. And I'm incredibly blessed to be your friend. Let's be valiant men together. Let's be men of honor together. Let's, let's be great fathers together as we grow this church and we grow our families, okay? And can we just give all the dads a hand this morning? I know a lot of our dads are out. We have people visiting their parents to be with dad, and so we're low in numbers today. But just want to honor you guys and everyone that can't be here. Let's close in prayer.